First Peter chapter 1. We're still in chapter 1. And we're not going to finish it today. But let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, we would be lost without it. Your word is our guidebook for life, our, our roadmap. Lord, we ask that you would just anoint, empower this teaching this morning, that it would take root within our hearts and minds and bring forth fruit in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're starting up today with verse 13. And it starts right out with, therefore. And so, therefore, Peter's connecting this passage with the previous one. So in light of the fact, he spoke in verse 9 about the end of our faith. That doesn't mean our faith is going to come to an end. It means the end game, the goal. He said the end of our faith, and he referred to it in verse 7 as our genuine faith. We talked about how important it is to be in possession of a genuine faith, not a fake faith, a counterfeit faith, a religious faith. We know that true Christianity is not religion, it's relationship with God. So, therefore, in light of the fact that the end of our faith, our genuine faith, is the salvation of our souls, as he also mentions in verse 9. It's not about being happy in this life. Sometimes we are, sometimes we're not. Now, the Bible does teach that as believers, it is possible for us to live in a continuous state of joy... Joy should not be impacted or affected by our circumstances. Whereas happiness is fleeting. Happiness comes, happiness goes. The end game, the end goal of our faith is the salvation of our souls. And yet how many times do believers forget that? We become so focused on the here and now, the temporary, the things of this world. We totally lose sight of the end game, which is the salvation of our souls. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And so next, as we, as we move into this next section, Peter lays out what we must do in order to persevere and endure. And so he says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yep, it's up there. Gird up the loins. Did you know that your mind has loins? We know that's a biblical term. In biblical times, they wore robes, right? Those could be rather cumbersome, particularly if you're trying to run or get somewhere quick, or especially if you're going into battle. People would gather up the long robes, tie them around their waists so that they could move quickly and freely. When the prophet Elijah ran on foot, racing King Ahab down from Mount Carmel back to Megiddo, he girded up his lines. And this particularly applied to soldiers preparing to go into battle. You could not afford to go into battle with this robe dragging all over the place. And so Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. Now the international standard version which has become one of the more widely regarded modern, so-called modern translations, 
says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. That's what it means to gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare your minds for action. Keep a clear head and set your hope completely on the grace to be given you when Jesus the Messiah is revealed. What does that mean? Prepare your minds for action. Be disciplined in your thinking. Philippians 4.6 talks about guarding our hearts and our minds. That's actually where the battle is won or lost. You know that? We often focus on outward symptoms. You know, whatever it might be. Smoking, drinking, chewing. So going with the girls that do, all that. So particularly in the secular world, the secular field of psychology, psychotherapy, so forth, and and actually many of your self-help groups, your support groups, the focus is on curbing your outward behavior, right? Controlling your outward behavior. But the battle is won or lost in the heart and in the mind. That's why Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind, prepare your minds for action. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Everything. Big or small. Because oftentimes, it's an accumulation of all the little things that creates the most anxiety, right? Be anxious for nothing. Don't allow anxiety to work its way into your life. That's one of the biggest issues in our, in our world today is stress, anxiety. How many times do you hear people say, man, I'm really stressed out? And everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, important part of our prayer lives is not just to always be asking God for stuff, but to be thanking Him so that we remain mindful of that which He has done. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God Jesus said, peace give I to you, not as the world gives. Inner peace, lasting peace. Again, a peace that should not be impacted or affected by what's going on around you. It's the calm in the midst of the storm. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Again, because with God's peace, you could be in the midst of the most horrific terrible situation and yet supernaturally as we bring everything to him in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving we have peace when logically speaking we shouldn't have and people go i don't get it how can you be so peaceful the peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds through christ jesus So often we're focused on the physical. God's concerned with our hearts and our minds because that's where the battle is won or lost. 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5. For the weapons of our warfare, and by the way, whether you engage or not, whether you acknowledge and recognize it or not, as believers... We are engaged in spiritual warfare on a daily basis. The people who are lost, the people who don't know God, they're confused. They really are not a primary target of the enemy because they're already basically in his camp. They're already under his influence. 
The biggest threat to Satan's desire for dominion, for control. We're the biggest threat. The church, the body of Christ. So we're the targets. We're the ones. We're part of God's army. Paul, when he writes to Timothy, talks about no soldier on active duty should become entangled in the affairs of this life. Paul's view is that every believer is on active duty. We're all in God's army. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly or worldly. In other words, when you're fighting a spiritual battle, guns and knives and sticks and pitchforks, that kind of stuff doesn't work. But mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. See, that's what the enemy seeks to do. He seeks to do it in the lives of individuals. He seeks to do it within a community, a culture, a society, is to build strongholds. Much like what we see happening in this worldwide jihad. Building strongholds. Gradually, incrementally, trying to slip in Sharia law and a whole different set of beliefs and values. And so far, I hate to say it, but it's working. And oftentimes, it works with the devil. Again, we see all of a sudden, it seems like there's this overnight explosion of homosexuality, transgenderism, all these different issues, but it's actually the result of an incremental, ongoing project by the prince of darkness to establish these strongholds in the hearts and minds of people and within a society and culture. And now we see that actually he has effectively done that. Another stronghold would be Darwinism, atheism. There are many. Paul says you can't fight these things in the flesh. But we do have weapons. We are not without our weapons. And they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Casting down arguments. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Our primary offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit, the Bible, the Word of God. And so doesn't it make sense that there's such a gigantic, concerted effort to silence those who speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Seeker-friendly, purpose-driven, emergent. We don't want to offend anybody. Joel Osteen. I have an idea for Joel. He could market plastic smiles. Get your Joel Osteen plastic smile today. All the flaky so-called translations or versions of the Bible, the massage. Otherwise known as the message. I think they should call it the massage. 
There's even an LGBTQ Bible. So if we can't get you to stop reading the Bible, preaching the Bible, teaching the Bible, then we will alter it and water it down. Because it is the sword of the Spirit. Oh, but if you'll just lay down your sword, we'll like you. We'll go to your church. We'll be your friend. Just lay down your sword. What happens when you lay down your sword in battle? You die. Now you may die with your sword in battle. But, as in the Old West... Cowboys wanted to die with their boots on. And soldiers want to die with their sword in their hand. Amen? Amen. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Elsewhere, Paul talks about principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in the heavenly realms. And this is something that we often lose sight of and forget. When you talk spiritual warfare, now just like God uses human beings as his vessels, as his instruments, Satan uses willing accomplices of the human variety as well. But ultimately, other human beings are not our enemy. They're simply, either knowingly or unknowingly, instruments of the devil. He is... he. And his demonic entities are the real enemy. Therefore, we cannot fight him in the flesh. It has to be done in the spirit. The good news, we do have weapons. And they are mighty in God. But now you could have this amazing, incredible sword hanging on your wall, right? But unless you take it down from the wall and use it, it's just ornament. It's ornamentation. And so we have a choice as believers. We can either leave the sword hanging on the wall and just look up at it and say, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? That's what a lot of people do. They go to church, they hear a message. Maybe it's a good message. Maybe it's a biblical message. But if you don't apply it in your own life and go out and fight the good fight, it's like leaving the sword hanging on the wall. And that's what a lot of people do. That's why it doesn't really matter to them on any given Sunday, what church they go to. Oh, it's just about making sure you go to church because that's my religious obligation. I would take issue with that, of course. Okay, finally, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I said the battle is won or lost in the mind, the heart and the mind. The heart and the mind are interconnected. Bringing every thought into captivity. What does that tell you? Your thoughts have a tendency to run wild, don't they? And they go here and there and every other place. They have to be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. If you don't take them captive, they will take you captive. And that's how People of good intent 
believers, if you will, wind up trapped in various sins because they didn't take the initiative. They didn't take the Word of God seriously that you must guard your heart and your mind and take every thought captive. Well, now that marijuana is legal, I guess it would be okay. I guess I'll just take a little drive up to Colorado. Temptation. Oh, making something illegal doesn't stop people from doing it. Really? Actually, it does. And when something is no longer illegal, more people are tempted to give it a try, give it a shot. Well, the Bible says obey the laws of the land. In Colorado, the law of the land is Toke away. I think I'll go get some. That's just one example of not taking every thought captive. Well, pornography is not illegal. I mean, they sell it at the 7-Eleven. Do they? I don't even know if they do anymore. I think it started out way back in the day in full sight. And then they got the little wooden boards to put in front of it. Then they put it behind the counter. I don't know. But we know it's abundantly available online. Paul said, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. Not all things are beneficial. But we have to take every thought captive. Then he goes on. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. And that's not speaking of don't get intoxicated. All the Bible says that too. But it means to be self-controlled, be disciplined. Hello, have you ever heard a word disciple? Disciples of Christ? Which every believer is supposed to be a disciple of Christ. And the word disciple is rooted in the concept of discipline. How many disciples are disciplined? Be self-controlled, be disciplined. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And most scholars believe, even though it's not punctuated this way, that all the words that follow are merely, the fruit of the Spirit is singular. It is love, agape. But all the words that follow are aspects of agape, like a many-faceted jewel or gem or diamond with many facets. There are many facets of agape. There is joy. There is peace. There is long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, And last but not least, self-control. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Boy, that could really get us convicted real quick, couldn't it? So, to be self-controlled is actually to be controlled by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And the degree to which we are or are not self-controlled is indicative of how much of the fruit of the Spirit is really coming forth in our lives. That's what I call a spiritual owie. It's convicting, isn't it? Ephesians 5.18 Do not be drunk with wine. So yes, the Bible does speak against intoxication. But notice how Paul connects it to self-control. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation or debauchery, a lack of self-control. 
but be filled with the Spirit. He contrasts the flesh and the Spirit. To be controlled by the flesh, to be out of control, to be intoxicated, versus being filled with the Spirit, therefore bringing forth that fruit of self-control. For the Christian, to be self-controlled really means you're controlled by the Spirit of God. Because you have yielded yourself over to God. You are not your own. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. When you're drunk with wine, you're out of control. When you're sober, you're in control. When a believer becomes intoxicated with the things of this world, the things of the flesh, he or she is no longer self-controlled or disciplined in the things of the Spirit. James 4.4 Adulterers and adulteresses! You'll see here, he's not talking about literally those who commit adultery by having relations with someone that they're not married to, someone else's spouse. He's talking about spiritual adulterers and adulteresses, those who are unfaithful to God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Which means if you are friends with this world, that's your goal, your desire, your focus. You're actually the enemy of God. Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so James says, when you embrace this world and the things of this world, you are committing spiritual adultery against God and you become his enemy. This all has to do with being, girding up the loins of your mind, being sober, being self-controlled, taking those thoughts captive, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you. Now, many people rest their hope on the things of this world. Their spouse, their job, their kids, their bank account, 501k, uh, IRA. And when you rest your hope on these things, the loins of your mind become ungirded, unguarded. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you. What is grace? We all know this. It's God's unmerited favor. It means we don't deserve it. That's what makes it so amazing. The grace of God. I don't deserve any of the things that He does for me, especially the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross for my sins. God's unmerited favor, getting what we don't deserve. We are vile, wretched sinners. Sorry to burst your bubble. Sorry, sorry to, to contradict your therapist. But you and I, we are all vile, wretched sinners. You want proof? The cross of Calvary. Hello. If you're so wonderful and I'm so, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. If that were true, then Jesus wouldn't have had to be tortured for you. So get a grip on reality. 
The grace of God is the only firm foundation upon which we can build and live our lives. You know that? There's an old song, All Other Ground is Sinking Sand. The wise man who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the man who builds his house upon the rock. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you. That's an interesting statement right there. To be brought to you. I thought we already had it. We do. But we have not yet seen the fulfillment of it. We are justified by faith. We have a position in Christ. We are in possession of of eternal life, but we do not live in eternal bodies right now. I become more and more aware of that every day. I don't know about you. I feel a little less eternal every day in my physical body. The grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, wait a minute. He's already revealed himself to me. Yeah, though you've not seen him as we already read here in 1 Peter You believe in Him, and you love Him. But the fullness of the depth and the meaning of God's grace towards us will not be fully known or understood until we see Jesus face to face. It's like, yes, praise God by the Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts and minds, coming and live inside of us. We have a sense of God, a sense of His presence. We have the ability to grasp and understand who He is, what He's done for us. It's kind of like hearing about someone, told all about them, reading about them, and you feel like you know them, but then when you see them face to face and you look them in the eyes, you go, oh yeah, now I get it. That's what it's going to be like. Therefore, the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, we must hang in there till He comes so that we can reap the full benefit of His grace. And by the way, that means and includes the resurrection of our physical bodies. The fullness of His grace includes and involves our own physical resurrection. That part we've not experienced yet, but we will. Why? Because God said so. And Jesus made it so. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul explains it pretty well for us. Now we see in a mirror. It's just a reflection. But then, when that which is perfect has come, Jesus, face to face. Paul says, now Paul arguably knew more than you and I will ever know in this life when it comes to this Word of God, spiritual truths, so forth, his relationship, unparalleled. And yet he says, now I know in part. Even Paul did not have a perfect, full, complete knowledge and understanding of the grace of God, although he knew it very well. I know in part, but then... When I see Jesus face to face, I shall know 
Wow, now this gets heavy. To use a baby boomer term. Wow, that's heavy, man. Then I shall know just as I also am known. Wow. Pretty powerful. And that's what Peter's talking about. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I mean, praise God that we know what we know now. That God has made Himself known to us. That He's given us the gift of faith. He's given us the ability to believe, to trust, to hope. But, to use another popular phrase, you ain't seen nothing yet. And the Apostle Paul lays it out really well for us in Romans 8. I'm going to read a big passage here, Romans 8, 18 through 25. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be the whole list. Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Gent. The glory which shall be revealed in us. He says the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be even discussed compared to these glories that will be revealed in us. And yet we get on our big pity parties, don't we? Woe is me. Life is tough. Life is rough. Some might even go so far as to say life sucks. Really? Which life are we talking about? This life or eternal life? And when you look at it in view of eternal life in Christ, it's not even worth talking about. Hello? For the earnest expectation of the creation. See, all of God's creation is involved in this deal. Creation got a raw deal when Adam and Eve fell. Everything came under the curse. Even the poor little fluffy bunnies. It's not fair. But all of creation came under the curse, and so all of creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. It's not like God looked down on the earth and said, okay, everybody who wants to be cursed and die, raise your hand. Bambi, I'm all in. No. But because of him who subjected it in hope. God had to do what he had to do. He's perfect, he's just, he's righteous. He cannot allow sin in his presence. He warned Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. But even as he brought this curse upon the human race and upon all of creation, he did it in hope. Because he is hope. And he already had a plan for redemption. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. Hello, environmentalists. Hello, Greenpeace. Hello, PETA. I'll have another one-pounder. You can actually get that at Fuddruckers. Whole pound. You want to kill yourself? Chris and I both had half pounders last Sunday and man, that stretched us to the limit. Didn't it? You want to kill yourself, have a one pounder. I guess that's a pretty good way to go. There's a place in Las Vegas called the Heart Attack Cafe. 
They serve all the big, huge, greasy burgers, fries. And there was a guy who was kind of like famous for going there a lot. He became almost like a spokesman. One time he goes there, has a heart attack. (laughs) I mean, it's not funny, but it's funny. Okay. (laughs) Because the creation itself also will be delivered, verse 21, from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. This is part of what Peter's talking about here. The full revelation. Right now we see as in a mirror, Paul said. We see in part. We know in part. We prophesy in part. But that, when that which is perfect has come, for we know the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. And by the way, as Jesus referred to these birth pangs, the closer it gets to the time of the end, the birthing of the baby, the birthing here is the new, here's where the devil's the big ripoff artist, okay? He doesn't create anything, he imitates. You've heard the term New World Order, right? NWO. The real New World Order is the one under Jesus Christ when he returns and establishes his kingdom here on the earth. And as the time draws closer and closer, the birth pangs, just like a woman in labor, get more intense and closer together. I would say, based upon that understanding, that the baby's going to be here any minute. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves. You ever experienced that? eagerly waiting for the redemption of our body. Now, there are some who say we shouldn't think about that. We shouldn't be focused on that, longing to see Jesus. Really? Longing to be like Him. And yet, Paul says, that's exactly what's happening. That's normal. As those who were the first fruits of the Spirit, born again, filled with the Spirit of God, Yeah, there's a groaning within us to be all that God created us to be and all that He says we are going to be when we see Jesus face to face. The redemption of our body. Because we are created in the image of God. Jesus Christ became God incarnate, God in the flesh. He lived His life in the flesh, so to speak. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He now lives in an eternal glorified body just like the one you and I are going to get. So that's when we will see the full revelation of the grace of God. For we were saved in this hope. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if there's no resurrection, we're to be pitied more than all men. The very focal point, the very heart The very core of our faith is that God came to this earth in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect, sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and on the third day He rose from the dead, and He promised that one day you and I would be raised from the dead. We were saved in this hope. But the hope that is seen is not hope. That's good news. When you look in the mirror, hope begins to fade. (laughs) 
You don't want to focus on what is seen. Now the young people, oh yeah. Yeah, baby, looking good. <laughs> I am hopeful. <laughs> you wait around, kids. It'll change. It'll change. And then you get all these airbrushed celebrities in the magazines and the internet and stuff. You want to lose hope, see them in person. See them without the airbrush. See them without the makeup and so forth. For we were saved in this hope, hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? In other words, you already see it. It either is or is you is you ain't my baby. You know what I mean? There's no hope involved there. Um, you either have that new Cadillac or you don't. It's not a matter of hope. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Boy, does that make sense. We haven't seen our resurrected bodies yet. We haven't seen Jesus face to face yet. But man, we eagerly hope for it with perseverance. See, this has to be our focal point. How many believers are really focused on these things? We talked about the fact recently, according to one study, only 10% of those who claim to believe in God, and by the way, we now have 25% of Americans who say they do not believe in God. One out of every four. One out of every four people you encounter does not believe in God. That does not bode well for our country, our society, our culture. And it's rising. And it's higher among the younger generation. If we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Makes perfect sense. We know it's true. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Jesus proved it when he rose from the dead. But we haven't seen it yet. Therefore, it makes all the sense in the world. We eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Hanging in there, enduring, keeping our focus on the end game. Taking every thought captive. Setting aside those things that hinder and distract. Take our focus off of where it should be. Let's stand. Father God, your word is so amazing, so awesome, so powerful. When we just take the time to dig into it. God, it had to be written by you. It's too dynamic. It's too powerful. It's too amazing. It's too life-changing. It's too transforming to be anybody's words but your own. I don't know about anybody else here today, Father, but I am just electric with the power of your word here today. The sword of the Spirit. Lord, help us to be soldiers of the cross. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner. It must not suffer loss. Father, we ask you to strengthen us, empower us, enable us to fight the good fight, to persevere, to endure, to eagerly persevere, earnestly, eagerly wait for your your, uh, revelation, the full revelation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the full revelation of your grace 
poured out to us and upon us. Lord, we're excited, we're anxious, we can't wait to see you, to be like you, to know you even as we are known. Lord, we pray for anyone here today that, that can't say that because they don't know you. They've not yet made that decision, that commitment, that leap of faith to entrust their life into your hands, to acknowledge you as Lord and Savior, to invite you into their heart, into their life, to to cleanse them, wash them from their sins and bestow upon them that precious gift of eternal life. If there's anyone here today in that position, we pray that today, Father, you would draw them to yourself, that your Holy Spirit would move upon them in such a way that they could not resist. They would come today and pray, acknowledging Jesus as their Savior and inviting Him into their heart, into their life. Lord, for those who are discouraged, downhearted, we ask you to lift them up, encourage them, help them to get their focus back on the end game, the salvation of our souls. Lord, for those who need healing, encouragement, guidance, direction, provision, Lord, you are all these things to us and so much more. Let no one leave here today, Father, discouraged, hopeless, helpless. Lord, we've learned today that our hope is in you and should be fixed upon you. So we ask you to draw men and women today here by your spirit to receive prayer as needed. And we ask you to anoint and use our prayer team today to minister to those who come for ministry. We ask you to be with us throughout this day, Lord. Lead us, guide us, direct us by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.